This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on Saturday the 16th of July 2022 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up on today's programme, the political journalist and author Terry Stiastini will leaf through the day's papers with me. And then Andrew Muller offers his sideways take on the news cycle. We learned this week of an entrancing new proof of the ancient adage which reminds of the ease of separating idiots from the contents of their wallets. And our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, brings us his weekend column. After years of to and fro, it looks like the trees will come down. But taking down a tree is emotive and people want to know where we stand on the issue. And I dare say we'll find out. That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24 with me, Georgina Godwin. First, though, here's the news. US President Joe Biden is meeting with Arab leaders in Saudi Arabia today, seeking to persuade Washington's Gulf allies to pump more oil and to integrate Israel in the region as part of a new axis largely driven by shared concerns over Iran. Biden says he raised the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi during a meeting with the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. He said he made it clear that the killing in 2018 was vitally important to me and the United States. But he also said the two countries reached agreements on other issues. Sri Lanka's ousted president, Gotabaya Rajapaska, who fled overseas this week to escape a popular uprising against his government, has said he took all possible steps to avert the economic crisis that's engulfed the island nation. Rajapaska's resignation was accepted by Parliament on Friday. He flew to the Maldives and then to Singapore after hundreds of thousands of anti-government protesters came out on the streets of Colombo a week ago and occupied his official residence and offices. Crisis-hit airline SAS said negotiations with pilots to secure new working terms and make savings that will allow it to secure its future are ongoing today. A majority of SAS pilots in Sweden, Denmark and Norway walked out on July the 4th after negotiations over conditions related to the Scandinavian carrier's rescue plan collapsed. And in our weekend edition of the Monocle Minute today, we look at a legendary Italian crossword magazine. We ask, do some shoes look cooler when they're worn in different countries? And we'll bring you this week's Summer House Hunter and hear from our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, on the dilemmas and delights of city life. Sign up for your own copy. Direct your email inbox at monocle.com forward slash minute. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Now, as promised, I'm joined in the studio by Terry Stiastini, who is a political journalist and author, and she writes political thrillers. But uh, even in the middle of fiction, have you ever seen anything like the way the Tory party is behaving in Britain? No. Uh, and this week, I think if you wrote it, it would seem such a sort of heavy-handed metaphor, this idea that this we're in the middle of a heat wave and everybody's kind of really stressed out and, you know, the temperatures, political temperatures rising. I think an editor would kind of get the blue pencil and go, can you just take it down a notch, maybe? <laughs> 
Um, so uh, yes, well, let's look. You know, the Times is going full on for the for the heat heat wave metaphor. They've even got a sort of graphic with a with a thermometer here, and it says plots, pacts, and betrayals as race for leadership overheats. And it says that they're reporting that the Tory candidates are turning on each other. So last night we had the first debate between uh, the five remaining candidates uh, to be the next Conservative leader, and then of course the next Prime Minister. Um, but and it was it was very interesting. One of the big questions in that debate was about honesty, and they were all asked whether they thought Boris Johnson had been honest. Um, and Kemi Bedinoff said sometimes. Uh, Rishi Sunak said, well, he'd resigned, and that was partly over honesty. Only one of the candidates said outright no and shook his head, which was Tom Tugendhat. And then also the ca- the other candidates were essentially accusing each other of not having told the truth. So Tom Tugendhat talking to Rishi Sunak, the former Chancellor, saying, you know, you told me you were just doing what the boss said about tax rises, uh, accusing Penny Morden of not telling the truth about her record on um, gender self-identity. Uh, you know, the candidate's actually saying, you know, go on, tell tell the truth about what happened in your time uh, in government. So this is interesting. Um, but also this article here is picking up on... You know the briefing and counter briefing of the different, uh, the different parties and the different supporters, and there seems to have been a lot of briefing against uh, Penny Mordaunt, who's one of the less well-known candidates. She'd been a cabinet minister under Theresa May, but only a junior minister under Boris Johnson. Um, supporters of Liz Truss reportedly uh, attacking her. Well, some of them, you know, on the record saying that she hadn't been an effective minister, that she hadn't been across the detail, uh, that she hadn't, you know, shown up when she was needed to show up, and you know other people. Some people are accusing Michael Gove, um, former levelling up secretary who was just fired by Boris Johnson in one of his sort of last acts. Uh, they're saying that Kemi Badenoch is sort of a candidate's being run by Michael Gove and that she will fold in behind Sunak when the time comes. So everybody is kind of briefing and, and counter-briefing and uh, trying to, you know, trying to put one over on, on the other teams, I it's guess. It's quite, quite extraordinary. Now, there does seem to be, and as we know, the only people that can ultimately vote in this are Tory party members. There does seem to be a huge amount of support from those members for Penny Morden. Yes, uh, this so far it's 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 kind of hard to tell. So uh, Rishi Sunak obviously is the front runner in terms of the MPs at the moment, and in the debate last night, you know, he seemed very confident, quite fluent. He seemed, you know, obviously, having been the Chancellor, you would hope that he is across the detail of, of tax and spending and so forth and trying to tell people to be realistic. But what there uh, also seems to be is a real fight now for the second place because people seem to believe that the Conservative members might vote for somebody who isn't Rishi Sunak uh, for, for a variety of reasons, partly to do with, with wanting to cut taxes. And so the fight for that sort of place is, is primarily really between Penny Morden and uh, Liz Truss. And although Liz Truss has got the support of a lot of cabinet ministers, uh, she's coming over as rather sort of awkward in these debates. And Penny Morden is a bit more able to tell you know, a story about her own background, how she grew up in Portsmouth, a sort of naval city, and she, you know, watched the task force sail off to the Falkland Islands. And she's coming over as a bit more persuasive in that way. But that is one of the reasons that a lot of the, the backers of the other candidates are really trying to sort of lay in lay into her record and saying that, you know, she wasn't an effective minister and that she, she shouldn't be prime minister. Mm. And, and Truss does seem to be channelling Thatcher, particularly in the way that she dresses. I mean, I know what the candidates look like shouldn't be important, but looking at that lineup 
lineup last night. You had everybody, as one person put it on Twitter, everybody dressed for a funeral except for Kemi, who was dressed for a christening. <laughs> uh, and she was in bright yellow. She looked fabulous. One thing that, that really struck me looking at all of their feet, well, the women's feet, <laughs> they were all wearing heels. And honestly, I don't know about you, but I don't know anyone who wears heels anymore. Post-pandemic, we've all ditched <laughs> Certainly them. not. I think that would be the brave one, the women who got in there in, in their trainers. Yeah. <laughs> also, you're standing behind a lectern, no, you know, unless you see it from the side. <laughs> but I think maybe it's just they, they all look taller than Rishi Sunak, which they oh, possibly all are. <laughs> he was looking more... He had the suit, but no tie. You know, Tom Tugan had his sort of one military regimental tie. You know, so yes, there's certain definitely image there. And, and Penny Morden, as you say, had this sort of very Thatcher, pussy bow, you know, bow blouse at the yeah. neck, you know, and the navy suit and the very sort of fixed hair. <laughs> so, but I mean, this is about to be over. We're going to lose... What, what's the next step? We lose another one. The next step, we lose another... Uh, there's another debate on Sunday evening, uh, then the next round of voting and the MPs on Monday. And as things stand, because there's this sort of very fierce, nobody seems to want to, to give up before they are forced to, there should be another two rounds of voting on Tuesday and Wednesday of next week before Parliament uh, rises for the summer. And after that, then if it's down, we'll be down to the final two and then that goes to Conservative members for them to have the vote. And we should have a new Prime Minister at the beginning of September. Right. Well, let's see what Andrew Muller's take on this week was. We learned this week of an entrancing new proof of the ancient adage which reminds of the ease of separating idiots from the contents of their wallets. We also learned that there are some crimes where the instinctive sympathy of any right-thinking person must be with the perpetrators, not the victims. Interesting. Tell me more. Let's see where this goes. For we learned of an astonishing scam pulled by an enterprising gang of fraudsters in India. Said scofflaws bilked a tidy stack out of lack-witted Russian gamblers by staging a fake Indian Premier League, an extremely low-budget simulacra of the high-octane Razamataz heavy 20-over cricket tournament of that name. The ne'er-do-wells went to the trouble of hiring local farm workers to play the games, which were broadcast live on YouTube, complete with computer graphics, sound effects downloaded from the internet, and an authoritative-sounding commentator. They used Hashabogle's voice. In fact, there was mimicry done, and all of these exchanges happened on the Telegram channel to take the bettings from a remote audience of Russian punters. The fraudulent tournament had reached its quarter-final stage before the organisers of the Indian Premier League tournament were arrested by the police. Punters were lured towards a telegram channel where they could wager their rubles, upon which the bogus umpire officiating on the pitch would receive walkie-talkie messages telling him which outcome to contrive for the maximum reward of the miscreant masterminds. And we learned, to our disappointment and indeed mild outrage, that said rapscallions had been arrested. We live in hope that any trial ends with acquittal, a handshake from the judge and a tenor from the till, as due reward for enlarging the general gaiety. We're now going to do one of those things where we attempt to get from one subject to the next via a linking device which posits some sort of commonality between the two. This one is maybe a bit of a reach, so let's have a crowd on the edge of their seat sound effect, evocative of a big top audience anticipating an especially intricate manoeuvre on the trapeze.
Because we learned, actually, let's have an anticipatory gasp as well, as if all present are suddenly struck by the distance the performer could fall once launched upon their trajectory if their grip proves unsure. Because we learned that the fake IPL was not the only contest being staged among frankly implausible participants, possibly, who knows, to the great interest of Russian onlookers with a financial stake in the outcome, and yes, I think we stuck that landing. Yes, we continue to learn who might be the next Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. I'm Tom Tugendhat. I'm Suella Braverman. I'm Penny Morgan. This young woman came to Britain where she managed to find a job. My mum came to Britain as a girl of 18 from Mauritius, recruited by the NHS. She met my dad, an NHS GP. You know what, they loved Britain. It gave them hope, it gave them security. This country gave them opportunity. But it was Britain, our country, that gave them and millions like them the chance of a better future. Britain, at its best, is low tax and high growth. I've heard it said that we can't afford to cut taxes. Well, the truth is that we can't afford not to cut taxes. As Prime Minister, I will lead a government committed to core Conservative principles. Low taxes, a firm grip on spending, driving growth in the economy. I think I share the same values as the vast majority of the people in Britain. These are the values of our country. Freedom, fairness, courage, compassion, patriotism, fairness, hard work. We are the most successful party in our nation's history because we more often reflect its values. But we also learned a brisk lesson in who it wouldn't be, as we learned, and very much for the first time, of the existence of Raymond Chishti, Conservative MP for Gillingham and Raynham. Well, indeed. We learned that Mr Chishti had set himself the daunting task of vaulting all the way from the furthest flung backest of benches straight into 10 Downing Street. Or, if we may mix the sporting metaphor, and why not, of becoming the political equivalent of Stephen Bradbury, the Australian ice skater who, despite heading into the concluding lap of the final a distant last, famously won Olympic gold at Salt Lake City in 2002 by being the only contender who didn't wipe out on the home turn. But the Chinese skater on the outside, oh, and it's a lot of contact, oh! confirmation never gets old we learned however that raymond chishti's audacious effort to emulate bradbury's magnificent feat fell narrowly short of the initial threshold of 30 declared supporters when it turned out that raymond chishti could muster only one whose name was coincidentally raymond chishti still we're talking about him we're also laughing at him but we're talking about him we learned, however, that our colleagues were insufficiently moved by this swift journey from hubris to nemesis to bestir themselves from their desks to record a chorus of mock grief at Mr Chishti's mishap, observing, not unreasonably, that they'd done something similar last week in somewhat different circumstances about equally obscure Tory MP Will Quince, which, in fairness, does not seem an optimal use of the time of the personnel of a very busy newsroom. As we've still got the Will Quince 
Science thing, though, here it is again. And you, the listener, will just have to help us out here by pretending that everyone is saying Raymond Chishti and not Will Quince. Not oh Will Quince? Surely not. How will we go on this without changes Will Quince? Everything. You're tired of Will This Quince. changes everything. What are we going to do? Surely do. not. Remember, everyone was saying Raymond Chishti, not Will Quince. Actually, even better, could we play that again, but with the producer wearily and resentfully sighing Raymond Chishti over every Will Quince? Not Raymond Chishti. Raymond Chishti. We go on without Raymond Chishti. Raymond buddy Chishti. What are we going to do? Surely not. Three nominations at next week's British Podcast Awards, folks. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. Okay, I think that's enough bloody Raymond Shisty. <laughs> Thank you very much to Andrew and the long-suffering Christy. Uh, well, of course, we are going to get rid of one, at least one of those candidates very, very shortly. Uh, but it looks like Italy, too, is ridding itself of a leader. Tell us about this latest <laughs> crisis Well, here. Italy sort of, again, ridding itself of a leader, but then possibly not. So uh, this isn't... So Mario Draghi, uh, for anyone who's been you know, following British political drama, Italian political drama, uh, is, has also been pretty big this week. Um, so... Mario Draghi, a former European Central Bank president who was supposed to be a safe pair of hands, supposed to calm everything down, um, supposed to make everything all OK, uh, offered his resignation to the president, Sergio Mattarella. Um, however, the president then turned him down and said that he has to come back to Parliament next week and try to do this over again. And I'm getting this explanation here from uh, the Financial Times, which has headlined it, Draghi battles to find way through Italy's maze of turbulent politics. Um, And there's a big picture here of uh, taxi drivers protesting in Rome and they seem to have kind of flares going off and smoke and it all all looks very dramatic. Um, And so the reason that this happened is that uh, Draghi is trying to hold a coalition together. He had done well in terms of the economy and he'd got a EU stabilisation recovery funds up to 200 billion euros. Um, but there was a vote on this financial aid package. The Five Star Movement said that they weren't going to vote with the government and now that is what has led to this crisis. And it's also come down to things about, you know, about including the taxi drivers' strike in Rome and the plans to build a, uh, a rubbish incinerator in Rome. Rome's rubbish. is It's such a big political political issue in Italy. It's kind of, it's quite strange, but if you go to Rome and you see the rubbish, you can kind of understand why. But uh, some some analysts here uh, in the FT are kind of suggesting that, that this is actually clever politics and this is actually good tactics by Draghi. So they're quoting a politics professor, Daniele Albertazzi, politics professor uh, in the UK at Surrey, says it looks like just political theatre, but Draghi has established his authority. He's going to go back to Parliament and say, who's with me? Uh, and somebody else echoing this, a political risk consultant in Rome saying, you know, he's showing he's not one to waste his time with petty games. He says, I'm Mario Draghi. You want to play your games? Not with me. So we will see next week if he uh, if he manages to, to get that through and manages to convince people to, that, that he's he's going to come back again. Yeah, because the last thing Italy needs is yet another election. Well, yes, that's that's a threat. You know, even if they end up having early elections, I mean, Draghi has not, uh, not been there very long. And as I say, he was supposed to, you know, be this sort of secure um, economy-focused 
person who was going to, uh, you know, unite the country. Um, but obviously there is there are big issues in Italy as there are everybody everywhere else over you know rising costs, taxes, uh, Italy's attitude towards Russia and Ukraine. You know, it's a five star, and the league uh, were not very keen on on Draghi's uh, supporting uh, Ukraine against Russia, and so that has been you know one of the other issues that's going on as well. So you know, Italy. I mean, I suppose Italy has been probably less turbulent perhaps in the in recent years than we were used to a, a while back but uh, it just shows that these kind of things kind of flare up again and that, that trying to get political stability is still is still a real challenge yeah, absolutely uh, let's see what uh, Andrew Tuck our editor-in-chief has been up to this week hard decisions where we live there are two towering London plane trees that rise high above the houses they are majestic not ancient two saplings probably first took hold here about a hundred years ago and now their boughs are intertwined but a problem their vast trunks are pushing hard against a neighbor's wall and they are concerned about their safety the very visible damage being done to their building after years of to and fro it looks like the trees will come down but taking down a tree is emotive and people want to know where we stand on the issue. Meanwhile, on London's Oxford Street, there's a divisive debate about the future of a Marks & Spencer's department store. The owners want to take it down as it no longer serves their needs and replace it with a greener, more sustainable edifice. The critics say that the carbon released could outweigh all the benefits of a more sustainable building rising here. It's a version of the same dilemma that people are wanting to switch to an electric car face. Will that be of more benefit to the planet than sticking with their same old car for 25 years? Or airlines considering junking planes that are only a few years old but are already considered fuel-gobbling dinosaurs? Or how about this debate that happened in Hong Kong? Would you build a towering, small-footprint skyscraper if it allowed you to create a green park at its base? Or would you drop the height of the building, use all the available space in the knowledge that people usually have better mental health outcomes when they have easier access to the street? Perhaps you skim this list and know with certainty what's right and what's wrong. But the nature of hard decisions, especially those about the cities we live in and love, is that often it's not really about right and wrong, it's about accepting that there will be some loss, some disappointment, as we try and do the best we can. It's not about good people and bad people, just folk struggling with genuinely difficult decisions, learning to accept some difficult compromises. I think the trees should come down. Has anything stayed with you since the pandemic? I mean good things, not a persistent cough or several extra kilos. While the big tree debate may have had its trickier moments, there's still a whiff of the lockdown camaraderie in the air where I live. Perhaps my favourite remain of those days is the bond we now have with our neighbour, Leo, now 86. At the end of every day, me and my partner ring his doorbell and then together we water the plants in our stretch of the muse. Leo gets the hose, we get the watering cans. As we attend the agapanthus and the oleander, we catch up on what's occurred over the past 24 hours, discuss trips to be organised. We're all off to the wedding of other former neighbours, Matt and Holly. 
Leo is sharp and funny, and if passers-by stop to admire our blossoming handiwork, he will often pretend to be our put-upon old gardener. I'd love to chat, he'll whisper, but the governors here will dot my wages if I talk too much. He's got rather too convincing of late, and people have started giving us an unforgiving eye. And he has good stories. We were in an Uber the other day, and he was telling us about how he came to England as a boy, leaving behind a tough life in Ireland and hoping to make it in the city. When his train reached London, he went and found the station master and asked if there was any work going. The next day, he was employed in the station. He later became a dresser in the movies in the 1960s, then the West End, before years as a butler for a group of lawyers. When we got to our destination, our driver, a Somali man, said, Sir, I hope you don't mind, but I was listening to your story, and you know, this is my story too. Leo was touched. They shook hands. Two men who had made a difficult journey, in life that is, not in the Uber, hoping for something better. I felt I had no option but to give a very big tip. That will definitely be coming off his wages. Monocle's editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, there. Well, still with me in the studio is Terry Stiastini, and we are having a look now uh, at France. A couple of stories here, uh, and one of them a big climate change story. This, if we needed it, is yet more evidence that uh, our climate is being hugely damaged by our actions. Yes, this is a story from uh, Le Figaro, and obviously in France, as in the UK this week, the temperatures are really high, sort of hitting 40 degrees, which is... Well, it's not so unusual in France. It's more unusual here. But uh, Le Figaro is reporting from uh, Mont Blanc and they're saying that a crevasse has formed uh, on the glacier in Mont Blanc, very high up on the mountain at about 4,600 metres high, uh, that the the snow is melting on the glacier that you can see uh, all the way through to the ice. And obviously this has a a sort of a short-term impact in that everyone is saying this is actually on one of the most popular routes up to the summit for climbers. And so this is causing sort of immediate problems for climbers because, you know, if you're trying to make your way up to Mont Blanc and you uh, there's a massive crevasse in your way, you are not going to be able to go to the, the easy route, which is not easy, would not be easy for me, but the easier route up to the summit, you have to go a different way around. Um, obviously, in the medium term, this article is quoting uh, the, uh, the guides and the people who run uh, tours and people whose livelihood depends on the mountain saying that this is going to get really difficult for them because, you know, climbing is, is going to be more dangerous and people might not want to come. In the bigger picture overall, this is really worrying for, you know, for the climate more generally. I mean, we saw uh, glaciers collapse recently in Italy. There was that dramatic footage from, I think, uh, Kyrgyzstan where we've seen all, all sorts of, um, you know, similar, similar things happen. Uh, and so, yeah, it's just uh, another example of how things that we really haven't seen before are happening uh, at the moment. And, you know, there's basically saying the risks of um, risks of landslides, uh, risks of, you know, the glaciers permanently being damaged. And who would think that uh, a, a climate problem in Canada, in fact a drought in Canada, is affecting uh, France? Tell us about this story. Yes, this is a story from the New York Times. Um, and, yeah, France is having suffering a mustard shortage. And, again, 
short-term impact. Shelves are empty of mustard in France. The supermarkets are having to try and uh, ration stocks of mustard. Chefs are saying, I haven't got the right things to make my delicious sauce or to eat with my steak. Bigger picture, two things here. So one, climate change. Uh, one of the reasons there is no mustard is that there is there's a drought in Canada. The mustard seeds uh, come from Canada, therefore no mustard. Also, the war in Ukraine, a lot of the vegetable oil, the sunflower oil and so forth that goes into the mustard with the mustard seeds comes from Ukraine. So the combination of these two factors uh, is, is leaving France without mustard. So you know, one, one thing, it's kind of a minor annoyance that you might not be able to get some mustard when you're in France. But on the, on the other hand, it just shows how... You know these bigger issues do feed into into people's everyday lives. Absolutely, um, and it's and it's affecting us here in, in Britain too. I mean, mustard's not really available here either. No, I mean I've, I've been trying to buy, buy mustard and, and wondering <laughs> wondering where it's gone. At least now I know where it's gone and why there is no why there does seem to be very little uh, certainly certainly French mustard. Yeah, uh, but this is something we're going to see repeated across many products, isn't it? Uh, yes, I mean, you know, again, uh, so the the problem of of Ukraine, of grain, of sunflower oil is is a, is another is another problem that is being dealt with massively at an international level. I mean, I, I remember I picked out stories here before about you know wine, and and while you might say, oh well, you know, you're going to get nicer British wine as the climate warms, you're also going to have problems in other places. I mean, you know, it's easy to kind of make light of it, but this these are these are serious problems that we are going to have to work out how to deal with, or else sort of radically and radically change the way we live, possibly. Absolutely. Terry, thank you so much for, for coming on and uh, doing those papers with us today. I'm quite sure we'll be uh, with you again in, in the week with all that's happening here in, in British politics. And uh, I think for now you should concentrate on, on writing a book that, <laughs> that is a bit more believable than what's going on here. Uh, thank you very much there to Terry Stiastini. And that's all for this edition of Monocle on Saturday. Thanks also to our studio engineer, Nora Hull. I'm Georgina Godwin. Monocle on Saturday will return at the same time next week. Thank you for listening.